Hackers targeted a U.S. information technology firm over the 4th of July weekend in one of the biggest cyber attacks in history. As Americans celebrated a national holiday, a group of cyber criminals was hard at work. It's affected possibly as many as 1,500 companies around the world. And the group responsible is demanding $70 million in ransom. It was the latest in a long line of cyber attacks, and it comes just weeks after a crucial summit between Russia and the US. But could the Kremlin be to blame? The rival attack would seem a little odd if it was orchestrated by the Russian state, since Putin went to Geneva to meet with Biden. They believe the Russians are turning a blind eye to the activities of some of the groups that operate on their territory. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the anatomy of a global hack. Imagine the scene. It's been a major holiday weekend, the 4th of July. Parties and barbecues and fireworks. And then comes Monday morning. You roll into work, probably feeling a little bit delicate. Get yourself a coffee, sit down at your desk and turn on your computer. And that's when all hell breaks loose. Right now, hundreds of companies are scrambling after the biggest global ransomware attack we've ever seen. Usually the first thing is that you might turn on your computer or your systems and instead of seeing something familiar, you would see a ransom demand. That's Emily Taylor, and she's... CEO of Oxford Information Labs, and I'm an associate fellow at Chatham House, where I edit their Journal of Cyber Policy. So Emily knows a thing or two about ransomware attacks, and this is how they unfold. A ransom demand that also tells you that your files have been locked, And if you pay the money, often in Bitcoin, uh, cryptocurrency, then the attackers will promise to give you back your access to your files and unlock your systems. You may try to open up Microsoft Word, for example, and it won't open. Part of its system was actually encrypted. Or you may try to open up a document that you created. That document is encrypted, and so it can't read it. The first feelings that people have will be kind of real disorientation and panic. The way that you find out what's happening is taken away from you. And speaking to people who've gone through ransomware attacks or cyber attacks like this is they describe like all of the things that you use in your business to give you information like your email, accessing your files, you know, what's our insurance policy? Oh, I can't access it because it's actually part of our file system. They have gotten into our network and into places that we don't know where they've gotten. We don't know what systems they have touched. So the first thing you have is no information and you have to immediately think of, well, how do we communicate with each other? And often people will be using maybe their personal phones, maybe messaging apps. They might not have the personal details of of key colleagues. So they have to really scramble to get basic information. And of course, they've got the real pressure of wanting to get on with their job. And so people need to talk to others to, to go through their normal chain of command. And everything's just made more difficult. The ransomware attack that was carried out over the 4th of July weekend targeted an American company, but its impact 
was felt across the world. It affected schools in New Zealand and supermarkets in Sweden. This is a reminder of how cyber attacks can affect our everyday lives. Across Sweden, hundreds of stores belonging to the co-op chain forced to close after a ransomware attack left them unable to operate their cash registers. The impact on the Swedish food retailers, it was their point of sale. Devices that stopped working now, nobody's really using cash at the moment during the pandemic or maybe a little bit. So that is how they get paid. That is how they do transactions. So if they're not going to be paid in a face-to-face transaction for buying food, they can't actually process that transaction. Therefore, they can't sell the food. Therefore, they have to close. And so 20% of Swedish food retailers had to close over that weekend. And that will mean that people were also without food. These attacks, they have a real consequence for businesses that are affected by them. And still, we're in a situation where the people doing that, who are often organised criminal gangs, are not brought to justice. There still isn't the international cooperation that is needed. And given that these could be schools, they could be small businesses, when they log in and they see a ransom note, I mean, what sort of money are they asking for? What, What does it say? So on the 4th of July itself, the perpetrators, this gang called Reville, posted a sort of global demand for $70 million in cryptocurrencies. And so they said, you know, somebody wants to pay us that, we will deliver the key that can unlock affected machines. The FBI has investigated what could become the world's largest ransomware attack. The Russia-linked cyber gang known as Revel launched an attack on Friday. It started to become clear on the Friday, just before everyone went off uh, for the weekend, that a software company called Kasia had had a problem. The target was a company that provides remote services to hundreds of businesses, including financial service firms and grocery chains. And that meant that the customers all found that they were locked out of their systems and their files uh, in a ransomware attack. If you're describing to people who are not in the tech world, what do they do? Who are they? They provide software. And that software is a clever way, a sort of all bells and whistles, all singing, all dancing, complete solution to managing the security of your network, which is brilliant unless it has become corrupted and then it's a nightmare. Ah. To do their job properly, they have to go in at what we would call a very low level. You know, they have a very, very privileged access so they can scan absolutely everything. And again, that's brilliant when everything is working properly because that's what they need to do. But as soon as that becomes, you know, like injecting poison into that, it means that it spreads right the way across the system in a very, very alarming way. And so the harm ends up being very indiscriminate. The company's CEO said last night 800 to 1,500 businesses were hit around the world. The group behind this attack is demanding $70 million to unlock the infected systems. What are the odds of that ransom actually being paid? I think in a way, if the ransom is pegged at a a level that you can't possibly pay, it's not an easy situation. But in one way, you have a clearer path. Well, we're not paying that, so how do we recover? More frequently, I think, the ransom is pitched at a level that is probably more or less affordable and more or less lower 
than what the company is going to lose by being out of business or have to pay external people to come and help them recover. Tell me about the group who've carried this out. What do we know about Reval? A lot of it is speculation. So they are thought to be based in the Russian Federation. They are believed to be an organised criminal gang. Reveal themselves were thought to be responsible for the Travelex attack and also for the ransomware attack on JBS meat, um, meat suppliers, which again affected food supply in the United States. So they're active and business is good at the moment. This is something that came up in the recent summit between President Biden and his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, a few weeks ago. It shows how important this is becoming, but it also highlights how far we are from the international cooperation that is needed to make sure that there is a real seamless way to investigate and bring these gangs to justice. And you analyse cyber attacks all the time. One of the sensitivities around this is that, you know, people are pointing fingers and nobody can be quite sure who's behind it. Can you tell the difference between cyber crime and a state-initiated cyber attack? In recent years, I guess the most high-profile attacks have been state-on-state. State. When you think back to the electoral interference in 2016 and, and disinformation campaigns, those were really state-on-state. State. But in fact, for most businesses, you're most likely to be affected by criminal activities rather than being targeted by a state. There is also a blur. For example, the Solar Winds attack. Solar Winds was a an espionage campaign, old-fashioned spying, and that's thought to have been perpetrated by the Russian state, whereas these gangs are identified as non-state actors. They're thought to be located in the Russian Federation, and there is a question mark about, you know, how much actual or tacit protection they enjoy from the Russian state, but they're not acting, not thought to be acting on behalf of the state. So they're not directed by them, but they may well be tolerated by them. The thinking is, you know, as long as they're not attacking people at home, there's a sort of perhaps a level of toleration going on there. The trouble is that nobody can agree what happens to you as a state if you do break those norms. There isn't really yet agreed consequences of breaking the rules. And do most states sort of have the, the know-how to be able to root out cyber criminals like this? Some do, some don't. With uh, states such as the United States, which has unfortunately suffered quite a few attacks this year, at the government level and across industry, there'll be very, very high levels of capability. And in many countries as well, of course, you've got the ability to, to call on experts, even if you don't have that ability yourself. But there is a major need for what's called in the business cyber capacity building. And actually, there are a lot of programs that are very effective going into countries and starting to build up the capacity within that country, government and private sector, to understand what the issues are and also to be able to respond to these kind of threats. That's desperately needed because the levels of ability around the world are patchy. And 
And countries don't just need international help in dealing with attacks. They need more cooperation in trying to stop them. Catching a criminal and proving their guilt in one country is hard enough. But when you're dealing with crime on an international scale, things become far more complex. If in the investigation of that crime, one bit of cooperation falls down, the whole house of cards collapses. And that is the reason why there have been so few successful prosecutions of cyber criminal gangs. It is leading to all sorts of tensions between countries. And you mentioned that sometimes, you know, this is quite clearly state level cyber espionage or cyber attack. I mean, talk me through sort of some of the biggest examples of that. It's the biggest digital espionage campaign ever uncovered. The true scope of it is only just coming to light. So SolarWinds, another software company providing services to a number of government departments, it became clear that their systems had been compromised for quite some time before it came to light. And that's a classic type of espionage activity. Spies don't want to be caught. What they want to do is sit on your systems and observe what's going on, move laterally through the networks and see what they can find. And there are other examples, not just espionage. Nearly a quarter of a million people lost power in this small Ukrainian city when it was targeted by a suspected Russian attack last December. Vassal Pemchuk is the electric control centre manager and told us when hackers took over their computers, all his workers could do was film it with their cell phones. When the analysis was done after the event, it turned out that those systems had been breached months before and the attackers just sat in the systems figuring out where everything was, waiting for the moment. And then, if you like, the switch was flipped in a synchronised way, taking out a number of power stations at the same time. How are the governments in Moscow and Washington DC responding? And what can a Russian hacker Tell us about the politics of cybercrime. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, a word from an old friend of the podcast. Hi, I'm George Abuffnot, the deputy editor of the Sunday Times Insights Investigations team. It's you, the listeners and subscribers, who enable the Insight team to investigate the government's response to the pandemic. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with the Times and the Sunday Times. If you subscribe today... You can enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin shook hands at an otherwise tense summit in Geneva, 
nobody believed they'd suddenly become friends. But it was an important engagement at a time when relations had deteriorated. And President Biden walked away saying he'd set out a series of red lines to prevent future Russian cyber attacks. Two weeks later, American businesses were targeted by one of the biggest cyber hacks in history. And it was carried out by Russian speakers. To find out how this diplomatic crisis is playing out, we called up the Times correspondents in both Russia and America. My name is Mark Bennett. I'm the Times correspondent in Moscow. And Mark, from Russia's point of view, what's the story of this cyber attack? Well, the Kremlin says it's not involved. It doesn't even particularly know what's going on and that the reveal group isn't linked to Russian officials or Russian security services in any way. I think, to put it colloquially, the White House would say, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? That's the Times Washington correspondent, Alistair Dauber. I don't think that the American government believes that there's someone in the Kremlin hacking into businesses. I think what they believe is that the Russians are turning a blind eye to the activities of some of the groups that operate on their territory. I think what the Americans would very much like the Russians to do is go and round these people up and break up the hacking groups. And I think if there is an accusation from the US, it's that Moscow isn't doing enough to stop this happening. Now, the Russians turn around and say, well, you know, these are criminal groups. It's nothing to do with us. And by the way, the Russian government is sometimes subjected to these hacks. So we're as much as a victim as you are. That doesn't quite wash here, I have to say. Hacking is seen very much as a Russian speciality here. And as I say, you know, it was one of the key things that Biden wanted to extract from his meeting with Putin in Geneva. Another meeting between the Americans and the Russians is due to take place this week, with cyber attacks featuring high up on the agenda. I think the feeling here is very much that the Russians are paying lip service to it and they're quite happy to see... American businesses from time to time um, being targeted and, and being stopped. Is that how it looks in Moscow? From the Kremlin's point of view, and um, as uh, Russian analysts have been pointing out, it would seem the timing of the latest attack, the rival attack, would seem a little odd if it was orchestrated by the Russian state, since Putin went to Geneva to meet with Biden with one of his, his express objectives was to stop the United States imposing sanctions on Russia, or at least to get some kind of understanding that they weren't going to happen now, and then it weren't going to happen next week. And then for him to go away and say, ah, let's close down the biggest businesses, it would seem a little pointless. Or why would he go to Geneva if he was going to do that the next week? There doesn't seem to be any logic in it. I mean, what's in it for the Kremlin? And the Kremlin doesn't need $50 million. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, surprised the world recently when he spoke to the American TV network, NBC, to defend his government. We have been accused of all kinds of things, election interference, cyber attacks, and so on and so forth. And not once, not once, not one time did they bother to produce any kind of evidence or proof, just unfounded accusations. So is it unfair to blame the Kremlin? Mark recently spoke to Dmitry Smilianitz, a former Russian hacker who now lives in the US, and asked him if the Russian government could do more. 
He said that while the Kremlin doesn't have any official links to Reville, if Putin wanted, he could stop them, even if they're not operating in Russia. I mean, if he said if they're operating, for example, in Kazakhstan, which has like very good ties with Russia, Russia could use its influence to crack down on the group. And obviously, if they're operating in Russia as well, Putin could use his influence. He said that not all the hackers were Russians. There were people from Kazakhstan, people from Ukraine. So it was kind of like post-Soviet operation, really. But like you said, it only needs one person to come after them, Putin. If he goes after them, they're all done very quickly. That's quite something. I mean, obviously, this man is sat in Massachusetts. How much can we trust what he's saying? Well, I mean, he's a former hacker. I mean, he says himself he was a former member of an elite hacking group, and he still has contacts within the Russian hacking community. He interviewed the purported spokesman for Reville recently. So he still has credibility, it seems, within the hacking community. Obviously, America has been blaming the Russian government for this. Does this feed into that narrative? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, it supports the idea that even if the gang isn't connected to Russia, that Russia has the ability to crack down on them if it wants to do so. But Smilianit said that one of the problems is that corrupt officials in Russia and in other former Soviet countries are basically covering and protecting the gang for payments that can reach up to $100,000 a year. And he said that even if Putin gives the order to clamp down on them, some of the guys who are being protected, they might stay free anyway because their cover is too good. And sitting in Moscow, I mean, does that sound plausible to you? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a secret to anyone that corruption is a big problem in Russia and the former Soviet Union. And um, cybercrime exploded here after the collapse of the Soviet Union, basically, when you had lots of uh, very educated people who suddenly had no money and turned to hacking as a way of supporting themselves. And are there sort of domestic pressures on Joe Biden to be seen to be really doing something about this? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that came out of the meeting in Geneva was that Biden told Vladimir Putin that there were 16 areas of key infrastructure that he considered to be red lines. Now, that's fine. But of course, Biden's opponents immediately after he said that were saying, well, what about the 17th area of infrastructure? What about the 18th area of infrastructure? You know, what about individual businesses? The suggestion being that he'd effectively given a green light to the Russians to hack into Uh. those areas that weren't part of the 16. And of course, he was talking largely about state organisations. He wasn't talking about private businesses. And so there's a school of thought here that that, that believes that Biden has essentially left the door open to the Russians to to attack those things that aren't going to disrupt Americans' day-to-day lives, but are going to cause lots of problems and allow some of these criminal groups to make lots of money. So when a ransomware attack like this happens, does it feed that narrative? Of course it does. And, you know, every day the White House is asked, well, you know, what's the American government going to do about it? How are you going to stop it happening? If there is a plan and, and there is a way that agencies like the FBI have found to, to tackle it, then it's certainly not being implemented at the moment. What's the Kremlin saying in, in response to sort of quite a lot of pressure from America? We here in the Russian Federation have a cybercrime that has increased many times over in the last few years. We're trying to respond to it. We're looking for cybercriminals. If we find them, we punish them. Russia says that it's also a victim of cyber attacks, a 350% increase on attacks on critical infrastructure last year. And Putin said they come from US cyberspace. The Kremlin is painting itself as as much as a victim as America. So I, I wondered if you could just tell us, you know, what else are you hearing from the hacking community about how it's possible to operate in Russia? Well, I mean, a few hackers have said that as long as you don't harm the Russian state, Mosmilianik, the former hacker, said that the Russian state doesn't hurt the hackers because it knows they're not attacking Russia. Kind of that acceptance reinforces the idea like, oh, Russia likes what we're doing, so we'll never attack Russia and just keep on attacking America. 
So, I mean, I guess the idea is until there are large-scale arrests or the Kremlin cracks down on them, they'll take that as a kind of sign that Russia doesn't mind them hacking into American companies and disrupting American businesses. When you're watching sort of cyber attacks all over the world unfolding and you're sort of seeing the ratcheting up of tensions between governments around them too, you know, there's a lot of finger-pointing, a lot of sort of challenge over who might be behind them. I mean, does this feel a bit like a modern war? I don't know if I would classify it as a modern war. That's the CEO of Oxford Information Labs, Emily Taylor again. But what I do think is that it's definitely causing tensions between countries and the response needs to be more cooperation rather than more finger-pointing. However, the real problem that democratic states, the Western states, are trying to grapple with is there don't really seem to be many adverse consequences for countries like Russia for just very overt in their use Mm. of cyberspace. You know, a cyber attack could, in theory, and there's a lot of legal theory around this, a cyber attack could be a, a justifiable cause to go to war. But there's a huge amount of grey area in between. <laughs> and that's where Russia is exploiting at the moment, where there are no real obvious responses beyond sort of strong words, expelling diplomats. What are you going to do? And what is really going to ratchet up the pressure on Russia? I mean, there are some calls and there were calls this week by some in the US legislature, you know, should we hack back? I can totally understand the frustration. I can totally understand that there's a feeling like Russia is completely acting as this wild card and seeming to get away with it. But once you start to enter in at that level, you end up in a real spiral of um, of escalation that could be very harmful indeed. Is it worrying that sort of some of this gets, you know, all gets put under the banner of a new Cold War? There's absolutely no evidence at all whatsoever that that Reval is connected to the Russian state or even operates within Russia. So for it to be a source of international tensions, when we simply don't know who they are, where they are, to probably be a mistake. <laughs> it would seem kind of a slightly dangerous move to start issuing ultimatums to Russia to crack down on a group that we don't even know is in Russia or consists of Russians. There's a degree of difference, I suppose, between businesses suffering a cyber attack and, you know, as you said, sort of state-level infrastructure. Is that sort of a big fear now about what might happen? In the interview, the purported spokesman for Verivel, he's went by the name of Unknown, he said that the group had the capability of starting a world war because um, they could gain access to launch sites, US nuclear submarines. But he said they wouldn't do it because... There wasn't any point. It wasn't a profitable move. (laughs) How worried is Washington? I don't think Washington is worried to that extent, although, you know, I'm also pretty sure that as these hacks continue, there will be checks and double checks and ensuring that things like missile sites are secure. I think it started off, certainly the, the attacks on corporate America as an annoyance. You know, why do the Russians feel they can do this? How are they allowing these groups to come in sitting behind a computer and steal all this money. I think as their frequency increases and as the feeling is that the Russians are allowing this to happen, I think it's now escalating and becoming quite a significant diplomatic issue between the two sides. Um, Joe Biden will try, or the White House will try very hard to ensure that 
businesses in America are, are properly protected. As the president made clear to President Putin when they met, if the Russian government cannot or will not take action against criminal actors residing in Russia, we will take action uh, or reserve the right uh, to take action uh, on our own. I think the feeling is here that the American administration isn't quite on top of the issue and it doesn't feel as though their efforts to persuade the Russians to stop allowing this to happen is at the moment having much of an impact. I think it's probably too early to say it's a new Cold War, but it is a new front in what has been a fairly lukewarm relationship for quite a long time. How bad could this get? It could get really bad. A missile may impact on land or sea within minutes. This is not a drill. At 8.07 Saturday morning, cell phones started buzzing with a message saying, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. The panic was palpable. Hawaiians rushing for cover under the threat of a missile attack. A few years ago in Hawaii, everybody got told to take cover because the systems had detected that missiles had been launched from North Korea. In fact, they hadn't been launched. But colleagues at Chatham House have done a lot of research on, for example, the cyber protection of nuclear weapons systems or satellites or civil nuclear facilities. They're not as good as we would hope. And so, yes, absolutely, the potential for damage is great. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with the brazen cyber attack that has shut down the biggest pipeline in the United States, cutting off the flow of gasoline, diesel and jet fuel. The Colonial Pipeline supplies fuel from the Gulf Coast to the densely populated eastern and southern United States. This Colonial Pipeline attack shows us the vulnerability of critical infrastructure, as does ransomware attacks on smart cities where you can sort of basically shut down a lot of a whole city. I just thought with the Colonial Pipeline, that actually there was a little bit of nervousness in the the communications from the gangs. I think they were a bit too successful and they were coming to the attention of the authorities. Once you get into attacking things like critical infrastructure, weapon systems, military targets, it's going to escalate into a, a kinetic conflict very quickly. And I think that, yes, of course, the possibility is there. We should be prepared. We should be protecting those systems as far as possible. I think that where we are at at the moment is in this zone where it's not serious enough to start a war. It's just very, very disruptive, costly and persistent for many, many organisations and businesses. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Oxford Information Lab CEO Emily Taylor, Times Moscow correspondent Mark Bennett, and Times and Sunday Times Washington correspondent Alistair Dauber. You can read more of Mark and Alistair's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Edward Drummond, Chris Wade, and James Shield, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If there's a story you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. <laughs>